You are listening to Dirt Work with Adam Morrissey. Hello and welcome to Dirt Work. This is your host, Adam Morrissey. Today we're joined by Scott Lowe, a partner and founder at 5G Studio, an architecture firm that operates globally, but locally, that offices locally in Dallas. They've done projects in five continents, including North America, South America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. How's it going, Scott? Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. It's going well. Thank you. Absolutely. So, Scott, I guess just to kick it off, if you could give us a little bit of background on 5G Studio and your origins and, you know, the thesis or driving force behind founding your firm. Uh, Sure. Well, it's pretty simple. Um, We were founded back in, uh, we were actually um, founded May 5th and uh, 2005. And so we started out with 5G stands for five guys that started the company. We had four here in Dallas and one in St. Louis. Um, we, uh, um, we have, we started with five and now we're, I think we're around low seventies, um, ish, um, office size. Uh, we're, we're still, uh, most of our folks are still here in Dallas. We're based in Dallas. Uh, we have a Miami office, um, an Atlanta presence and, uh, we have a Indonesia um, office in Surabaya, uh, Indonesia as well. And so we're, uh, we, you know, our, the reason we, we exist is we saw an opportunity to, um, provide a bit more, uh, design niche in the market. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we believe that design matters and it matters on the ROI end for our customer. Um, we, uh, don't do cool design for cool's sake at all. We, it has to have an ROI purpose for our, for our clients. And so we, we believe that through good design, um, and good design is a lot more than just aesthetics, obviously. It's a circulation of a building. It's uh, efficient parking. It's uh, efficient building systems that lower the, long, the, the operational cost of the facilities uh, or projects. And, uh, and so we we felt like we uh, had a really good knowledge base and a really good partnership to sort of springboard and be uh, an asset and sort of a mind of a stakeholder in with our clients. And that uh, model has served us very well. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Funny enough, our firm, Tremont Group, uh, local developer of uh, industrial and multifamily, we are also founded on May 5th, May 5th, 2017. Is that right? Funny enough. That's awesome. Um, I yeah, know that. That's right. Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. So, there you go. Yeah, pretty funny. Um, yeah, so our architecture, just building off your comments on design, architecture to me has always been fascinating because it's at this cross-section of aesthetics and design and also functionality and also trying to loop in a cost component. You know, we joke, you know, we build apartment complexes, but, you know, we could be looking at an industrial site or an apartment site either in the suburbs or an industrial park. And you might call an architect. The joke is you call an architect and they say, it sounds like a great project. Let's make it all glass. (laughs) And we say, well, wait wait a second. We got to, I don't think that's in the budget to do. Um, So how how do you guys balance those three aesthetics, cost, and um, functionality? Well, we work within the project parameters uh, that we're given, and uh, you know certainly cost, schedule, um, you know site, zoning, those are all um, project constraints. Otherwise, you know that's really the difference between the art architecture engineering world and, and art. Um, 
is we we have very rigid constraints that we have to live within and those constraints are very important um, now some of those constraints can change uh, if it makes sense to you know, good financial sense for the project but we believe in making the most of the project within those constraints and uh, we think that that's where we do better than uh, than most and uh, you know I, I, it, it is an interesting thing but we take those parameters um, as givens and we take them very seriously and so um, you know we I don't think we would this is just our philosophy I know philosophies differ from and I think that's fine I think that's great actually because we're not a good fit for every client and, um, and vice versa uh, but you know I think our philosophy is is that we're not in very we're not being good stewards and good servants uh, to our clients and our customers uh, if we don't take things like cost and schedule parameters into uh, account on the project. And sometimes um, those have to drive, you know. Um, we we want to do beautiful projects and, and, and we do do beautiful projects all over the world and we try to squeeze the most out of everything, but that may be not the most important uh, governing criteria for one particular uh, project. I'll take a, say we're, we're designing a manufacturing facility for our customer or some sort of industrial, you know, those, those are, those are, have to be efficient and cost driven type of, uh, of, uh, of exercises, healthcare, you know, those uh, wellness environments, although we take aesthetics and and natural lighting and those kind of things very much into account into our wellness facilities. Um, you know, systems become the most systems, circulation, efficient circulation um, for emergent care and those kinds of things uh, become drivers in those types of instances. So, uh, so it just kind of, kind of depends, you know, you have to really understand your client, you have to understand the project and, and uh, be good listeners at the end of the day. You mentioned some of these projects, beautiful projects, some of them, you know, I, I know locally the Virgin Hotel and the Omni Hotel and Conference Center and then, you know, the 4510 store at Hudson Yards and bridges in Amsterdam and skyscrapers in Indonesia. What is consistent between project to project? Do you, have you guys, and you mentioned some of these parameters that are the driving force of the projects, but, you know, do you guys have a little bit of a formula in place that allows you to be successful across geographies and product types um i would say I, I would say we do we definitely do have a process that proves out um that process though is driven by really smart people we take our recruiting the most serious probably of any aspect of growth aspect of our business and so we only hire the the very best and brightest designers they have to be really good designers first we don't hire PAs or PMs or project designers, we hire really good, um, well-rounded designers and architects and, uh, or, or if they're right out of school, good designers. And we mold them and shape them into uh, exposing them to all aspects of a project. And, um, and that's how we evolve the practice over time. And so, you know, those, so if there's anything, we have a they call it, <laughs> I did a lot of, it, it, it's, it's called the flex flow diagram and it's, and that flex flow diagram is a, 
dynamic and constant communication internally and externally. And what and through that communication and that listening, uh, listening being the primary vehicle, um, we, you know, our people take. They don't really look at this as a job. You know, we we don't we don't close as a company. We allow all the freedom and flexibility to do people's job. We just supply them all the tools necessary to do it. Um, and uh, we let them explore that because the technologies are changing all the time. And uh, we pay them really well to do their job. And and uh, so they just sort of see it as an extend, as an extension of, it, of, their, of their education and that studio process that we all learned uh, with in our different schools and uh, education formats. And so I figure, you know, if, if people are having fun uh, doing what they're doing and, you know, they're, they're passionate about it. And uh, if there's, there's, there's passion there, there's rigor. And if there's rigor, there's good results. And uh, that's kind of what we try to foster in, in all of our people. And they, uh, they carry that over into the client interactions and projects that they engage with in. And so that's really, it's really our people. I know everybody says that, but it, it truly is. I mean, we, we really spend a lot of time procuring uh, our folks uh, from the right institutions and and uh, growing them internally and really fostering that passion that got them into this field in the first place. I think that's where a lot of firms fall down at is they, you know, they bring them in and then all of a sudden there's this real world slap in the face. We try to soften that, that, uh, that slap in the face. And we try to just keep that studio environment going um, throughout their, throughout their career. And uh, I think that's why we have almost, no turnover and, and we have a, a real loyalty and um, not one of our people works a 40 hour week. They all work with much more than that, but they don't do it because necessarily the jobs requiring that sometimes it does, but they do it because they're pushing the product and the end result to the best it can be. And you just can't, you can't, you literally can't buy that. Uh, it's gotta be something that, that that's in you, you know, yeah, sure. I mean, it definitely sounds like very much like the culture of the Silicon Valley tech firms. You know, I remember Google always talks about, you know, creating an environment where people want to be there all the time. You know, so you're not only do you, when we spoke the other day talking about 5G, everyone thinks it's a tech firm. You do have a little bit of a tech culture there. Yeah. I, I, and that's um, that's been told to us numerous times over the years from our clients and consultants and those types of things. It's like you, you guys have a different, a different attitude or a different environment than I've really ever experienced with a, any other firm I've dealt with. So we're proud of that. You know, we, we, we think it, we think it works for us. Um, it, it, you know, it doesn't work for everybody, but that's okay. Uh, like I said, cause there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of diversity in the market. And I think that's, I think that's actually healthy. Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about operating globally and people, quality of people enabling that. We've gotten involved in uh, a private equity investment for a plastics recycling company in Prague and no firsthand. Uh, sometimes it's not, they're not the easiest places to operate international, internationally. Are, are there, from an architecture standpoint, is there technical, strategic or market differences going on now that are 
inhibiting or promoting international work today? Well, I mean, in the short run, of course, you know, um, you know, travel is, is, is very difficult. I was actually on the phone with, uh, one of my clients yesterday, um, who is, um, co-developer on a project here locally, but a developer in France, um, for a resort that's happening there. And, uh, and he, he's banned from traveling over there. So he's, saying, well, I may, I may lose, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if they're going to replace me or uh, what the deal is. So, you know, odd times for sure. Um, but we, you know, we got into the international uh, realm of business in architecture simply out of necessity. We were, we were four guys uh, in Dallas that came out of the Beck group. Uh, our fifth one was a branding and graphics expert up in St. Louis. And so we had all this big project experience used to dealing and being entrusted with, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of our customers' money. And you break out and you find out how small you really are very quickly. Um, and that to, for a customer to come in or a client to come in and entrust you with, uh, tremendous amounts of, uh, of risk, um, is, is actually quite difficult to overcome, uh, here in a very mature real estate market, like, like, uh, Dallas. And so we actually took our experience to, at the time Vietnam was, was on the rise. And, uh, we had a few ties through my partners. We had a few ties over there into the Vietnamese markets and uh, Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City and the Chang and some different places. And so we went over there and we just, we just hustled and we met with as many people as we could. And, and the strategy really was is to that, that Vietnam may not be a permanent solution or a permanent market for us to be in, but in the interim, it's, we're going to use it to sort of build portfolio under the 5G name and get into some different typologies we weren't used to. And hospitality in Vietnam was very hot um, during that time. And so we, we knew this, we knew the uh, a core folks out of Paris, you know, the different, the, if you're not familiar, they're the ones that do the Sofitels and the Novotels and those types of things. And so, so we, uh, we sort of followed them to these different Vietnamese cities and these different sites. And we, we really made a name for ourselves over there in, uh, in all through Southeast Asia. And, uh, and so that was sort of our hustle, <laughs> if you will. We, we felt like that. And then we came back and we leveraged that portfolio into bigger, more domestic um, projects. And, uh, and it worked. That strategy worked. And uh, because we could then, with a straight face, say that we have this experience as a company. And, uh, and it wasn't previous professional experience or anything we were touting. It was, it was, it was real 5G experience and they were impressive projects. And so, and they were getting built. And so that was, um, with some of the largest, we actually ended up, our, our Vietnam network went all the way to the highest sectors of government, uh, in Vietnam. We, we, we did it with, um, at the time, a couple of, uh, top five banks in Vietnam and we were clients and, so we did really well over there. Uh, we cl ended up closing that practice in 2013 uh, to pursue other other markets, uh, Indonesia being 
uh, being the one we target, we're, we're still doing a lot of a lot in. It was a bit more sophisticated, a bit more mature market, and uh, and we had some ties there. So we parlayed that into that international market. That's been that's been performing quite well for us over the years. Yeah, I think people forget. I mean, Indonesia has about two hundred seventy million people. It's a big market. Um, yeah, I, I resonated with your comments on getting the first project there is that chicken in the egg scenario uh that you know new ventures start you know you got to get the first project and then you know you can pick up momentum from there uh do you guys have projects going on in asia currently we do we do we have we still have a uh we, the the one we're focused on right now is a uh, a small resort in bali um that we're doing with uh um a pretty line of ours over there, and that one is continuing forward. Um, most of our hospitality projects, if they were early in design, um, if they're not under, already under construction, even even still, um, most of them have 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 halted. But that one is moving forward. We've got a handful that are moving forward, but we had we had a pretty tremendous backlog of of hospitality work that has uh, paused momentarily. So, but that one's, that one's the only one we have going on over there now. Um, there are a couple under construction that are finishing up, but, uh, but that one's, this one's pretty exciting. I'm very excited about it. It's going to be very, very nice. What does this property or project boast that makes you so excited? It, you know, it's scale is really nice. And anytime you can do anything on the island of Bali, it's a really big deal Sure, yeah. uh, because it's, uh, very difficult to get that done. And, uh, and this one is um, going to be really, I think, pretty spectacular, given its scale. So, uh, which I think is where hospitality is actually headed. I think hospitality, you know, because of this COVID thing, there was already a little bit of trending that way anyway before COVID. But now that we're going to be in a post-COVID world, the hospitality that's going to get done, I think, is going to be very small in scale. And I think it's going to be sort of ultra boutique, if you will, like 50 keys and, and less. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, that's that's going to be kind of where it's at. It's going to be like a, a really large, um, you know, Airbnb type type scenario. And do you think that's like a social distancing consumer confidence driver or, or what do you think's behind the reduction in scale? I think there's twofold. I think it is. I think people, uh, I think as people start to examine real estate, they're going to start to pack less people on it and that the performance not necessarily, I think yield expectations are going to have to go down. Um, and especially in the short run, I don't think long run, that's necessarily the case, but for those yield expectations to go down, I think density is a natural uh, tail on that, right? And so, in terms of program, and so hospitality was kind of headed that way anyway, especially here in the U.S. Um, you know, I'm not saying that. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to convention center hotels. I suspect they'll still they'll still exist. Um, but you know, as I look at the European and Asian markets, you know, hotels really in Asia, the conventions and those types of things that happen in they do have conventions, but you know, the hotels are really for weddings and, and family events and those types of things. They're, they're sort of an out and they're like an, like an, an outpost for business and, 
and different, uh, you know, mixer events and things like that, which is... Yeah, like an extension of the community. The extension of a community. And so I think that the hotels probably, you know, I, we started to sort of see that a little bit um, in the uh, um, sort of right prior prior to the COVID, we were kind of looking at projects like that. Um, but I think certainly in post-COVID, those densities are going to come way down um, because... One, I just think it's time for the hospitality mark markets and sectors to start reimagining itself and what it is, and they're becoming more entertainment and and leisure driven than they are uh, lodging driven, and I think that's a really important distinction. Um, to so the lodging component, I think, comes way down. Yeah, I've heard um, even you know concepts of hotels removing guest rooms and adding like creative office on some of the floors just to reduce the number of keys and, you know, increase the versatility of the space. So it definitely seems like there's a lot going on. Um, you know, obviously the, on the COVID front, a lot of these cards are still being played out and, you know, you talk about reduction in scale on hospitality. So are you seeing any other changes in design or design trends uh, in response to, you know, remote work or social distancing or client demands? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think densities in general will come down. Residential maybe maybe the one that's the most steady and probably the most constant um, in terms of it's, it's fared pretty well. If you, you know, you don't hear of a lot of apartment complexes and those types of things with large breakouts of COVID and those kinds of things. So, so you sort of look at the, those, you know, I think the management groups have done a really good job um, probably managing the assets well, you know, closing pools and the community spaces and those types of things. But at the same time, you know, you think, well, you know, I think we're probably okay um, in urban and suburban sort of uh, multifamily type type situations uh, in terms of in terms of that. But in office, you know, I see office scale coming down. I see multi-tenant being either either significantly limited or um, uh, or, you know, or single tenant being becoming more and more um, desirable. I also see, um, uh, you know, and we're, we're actually dealing with this on a couple of projects already. Our, you know, our clients are asking questions like, how do I get from my car to my desk without touching a single surface? You guys have the answer? <laughs> yeah, actually, it, it can be done. Believe it or not, the systems do exist to do that. Um, now, those systems have not been employed traditionally due to costs uh, because they are significantly more expensive. The other thing you got to be careful with when you start employing technologies, because um, the best technologies in buildings are the ones that are seamlessly integrated into the design and the interior design and architecture. Uh, but when you start integra fully integrating systems, especially uh, your low voltage uh, systems and those types of things, what you're, you know, you're, it's like when you move in, if you, if you were ever to come into a house and I, I live in a 1904 home, well, the, the intercom systems are still on the bedrooms upstairs, you know, and those intercom systems were installed in the early sixties or late sixties or whatever. And so you look at it and you're like, <laughs> and they're cool looking, they're super cool looking, but obviously, you know, totally obsolete. And so yeah, the house I grew up in had them. We had had some fun as uh, 
teenagers right. with them. And so that's sort of the that's sort of the trick, right? When you start integrating these technologies, is figuring out a flexible way to do that without dating the building or dating the system itself. And so, um, and I think that the technologies are to a point where you kind of do that um, now. Um, but you know, if you were to, you know, we were to go back twenty years or thirty years from now to look at what a phone can do uh, now and what it looks like and its functionality, we probably would have not imagined that most people. So that's, you know, we're looking at, we're looking at that, uh, again, yield expectations have to go down, right? Because your costs are, your costs are going up to employ systems like that. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously the easy ones are the mechanical systems, more robust, uh, mechanical systems. I mean, uh, filtering systems and those kinds of things are, are certainly uh, very doable. Um, but costs, again, being being a parameter there that you got to watch. Sure. Um, yeah, it should be interesting. I mean, because in the development realms, you know, margins and yields are, you know, getting tighter and tighter all the time. But, you know, with uncertainty of what rental rates will be across multifamily or office or retail, you know, it's... Uh, probably everyone's bracing for a bit of an adjustment. Um, so we talked a little bit about, you know, 5G starting in 2005. We talked about beautiful projects, talked about people. What are you most proud of in the, in the first 15 years of 5G? Wow. Um, you know, I like the fact that we've stayed true to our original mission, which was to uh, elevate our, our customers' um, you know, really our value proposition was to was was design better buildings um, with the with the knowledge and skill of a because we came from an integrated company being back the back group and so we have a lot of construction knowledge as well and so to use that construction knowledge and the architectural knowledge to do to to push and deliver better design for our customer and we've always stayed true to that vision, and we believe we believe in that 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 vision that that vision will get us to our ultimate goal, which is to be one of the finest and most sought after design firms in the entire world. And although we have um, a ways to go, we find ourselves steadily moving in a positive direction towards that end goal uh, through that thinking. And so I'm most proud that we've sticked. That we've, you know, and it, there's been some pretty scary times where we've been tempted to sort of take things that aren't a good fit for us, or to take on clients that, frankly, we shouldn't be taking on, and um, and aren't a good personality match, and those kinds of things. And we've we've always believed that um, that if we stayed true to the vision, then eventually we would reach our goal, and we've never wavered on that. And I. Uh, um, and I'm proud of that. I'm really proud of that. What, what are you most excited about for the future? You know, I was thinking to myself, will you guys ever consider taking on a project in Australia and Antarctica to try to hit all seven continents? <laughs> uh, yes. The you answer is call yes. yourself seven C. Yes. And okay. I'll travel there. Uh, maybe not Antarctica. Uh, yeah, actually I see it. It's cool. Um, but yeah, I, I think what I'm most what I'm most excited about are the couple of projects that are going on now. I mean, we're working with the development group that's doing the, the Crystal Lagoon out in Rowlett 
on Lake Ray Hubbard here locally. Mm, yeah. Um, is that a billion dollar project? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, the vision is just so cool and it's just so amazing. You know, we live in North Texas and, you know, when things are done like that, you know, I remember the stadium getting a lot of scrutiny, you know, the Cowboy Stadium getting a lot of scrutiny at the time. And, you know, the people were, um, sort of smart alecky in circles calling it Jerry world and those types of things. But cause they're, you know, they're, they're really, what they're really saying is, Oh, I'm above a contrived environment. I'm above that. Those kinds of Disneyland type type plays. I don't see it that way. Actually. I see that. I see it as, as an appropriate response to North Texas, because even though we have some lakes, you know, we're not on the ocean. We don't have mountains and we need, you know, people here are really starved for, good entertainment and good uh, family entertainment outlets and that are of a scale, these sort of regional, what, what I call a regional resort. Um, and uh, much like La Quintera acts as in San Antonio for, for so many Texans. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I think that that vision is just, is just so well appropriated and just spot on for where the market is and the demand is in terms of level of activity and and variety and 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 quite frankly quality and so i'm excited about projects like that that are really big but i'm also you know i get we're looking at several uh smaller projects too and the smaller projects are interesting because the clients are wanting a really really high quality but at a scale that we don't typically get to exercise that level of quality at because of cost parameters and those other, other types of things. So I think the development market's changing. It's, it seems to be, and this is probably going to be exacerbated in the post-COVID world, but the harder it is to get projects to happen, the more complex and interesting they become. And so even though I'm not excited about some of the things that our group has had to endure along with many other firms. Um, and, and, you know, thank God, I, I think our firm is weathering uh, better than, better than some, or maybe even better than most. And, and uh, I really feel for a lot of my colleagues because I, I, you know, one thing about Dallas is we have a very rich and very talented um, architectural and engineering base, especially architecture. And we also have a very talented builder base. And so, you know, it's a really sophisticated market. And uh, I like that because it makes everyone better. It makes us better. It makes them better. And, uh, and so what I'm really interested in seeing is in this post-COVID world, even though I don't like what's happened in some ways, I actually see it as an opportunity in other ways to sort of reimagine familiar building types and typologies uh, into sort of this next generation of buildings. Um, you know, it, it's going to be very interesting because uh, people aren't going to start stop needing buildings. They're not going to stop needing facilities, but those facilities will just have to change. You know, and and if you look back through history, how buildings have evolved and um, changed and responded to cultural um, moves uh, for whatever reason over the years. You know, it's a pretty interesting history to follow. And this is 
in my view, no different. This is just the next evolution that needs that that will inevitably happen because of what's happened uh, with this pandemic. Yeah. Before I let you go, Scott, um, any publications or reading materials you'd recommend to listeners? Man, here lately, you know, I've usually got a pretty good book list that I can recommend. But honestly, I have not been reading a lot of books lately. I've been reading a lot of uh, business publications <laughs> because things seem to be changing um, a lot. You know, I read uh, uh, I read the stuff that the, the newsletters that come out from, uh, um, you know, I encourage you to subscribe to some of these newsletters like from JLL. Uh, Turner has a good one. Um, that Steve Whitcraft publishes, um, they, uh, there's a, there's a lot of them out there. And so I've just been consuming these things, uh, literally on a daily basis. I finished three of them this morning, as a matter of fact. And I think that, uh, um, you know, these local, uh, local publications, I think D magazine's done a pretty good job here, um, sort of keeping positive, um, with, uh, with what's going on. I've been very much into periodicals and local news and just trying to keep in front of and trying to evolve strategy, both in the short run to sort of live and move and and then your long term strategy uh, pieces, you know, looking more at outlooks and those kinds of things and these reports that I'm talking about, um, you know, long term strategy has uh, or long term uh, sort of strategic thinking has has really changed for me because now my long-term strategy is summer of 2021, right? Is a year from now, uh, before I was kind of looking at a three to five year, um, swath. Well, things are so unpredictable that I think, I think the long-term strategy really has to move. You, know, you have to move the goalposts in a bit and you have to sort of stay focused on and your rigor and your focus, Day to day has to be just, you just have to, you're not, you're not always going to make the right decision right now because I don't think, I think no one knows what the right decision is sometimes, but you got to, you got to stay true to your mission, vision, and goals. You got to, you, you really have to uh, focus day to day and you got to, you just got to wake up and keep swinging. And, um, and then when things, when things hit you, you just got to put your head down and keep moving. And, uh, and I know uh, that's a, kind of a general outlook, but that's the way I've been approaching business and my partners have been approaching business here lately. And I think you got to be really quick to respond to those, to those market forces too. You got to be, uh, you got to be on your toes. And so, so that's what I've been reading here lately. Um, I wish I had better, I wish I had, I wish I had more theory to give you and those types of things, but when things, sure, no, when no, no, things no settle down, I'm, I'll go back to theory papers and different uh, I like history a lot. I read a lot of history. Uh, I like military history. Um, and, uh, and, uh, I like a lot of art and architecture history. Um, so I'm a, I'm not a big fiction guy. I don't read, I don't read a lot of fiction. Um, so I'm boring in that way, but, but, uh, but yeah, that's where I'm at. I got a good one for you. Just hearing like the 5G story. There was a book I read um, before I left um, a consulting firm to work with my friends, now business partners, called Powerhouse. Okay. It was the rise of Creative Art Artists Agency in LA, uh, CAA. Five guys that left William Morris to you know, start a firm. They were probably too cocky for their own good, but right. some really great stories in there. They talk about, you know, they opened an IM pay designed 
uh, building, office building in Century City that I still think they operate in today, but a lot of good stories about passion and entrepreneurship and business and in the entertainment space in particular. I'll pick it up. So I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to get one. Yeah. Uh, I'll get one over to uh, your Main Street office. Oh, awesome, man. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. Very I, good. I love uh, I love books that that uh, friends and colleagues recommend. Uh, they turn out to be the best ones for me, honestly. Yeah, well, I hope uh, I don't let you down. But Scott, appreciate you coming on the show today. Glad we could get connected and hope to cross paths again here in the future. Adam, likewise. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you for that. Yeah, take care. Thanks, Scott.